four as well as kindergarten through fifth grade, you are dismissed now to take part in Children's Church. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Man, it's good to see you today. I'm glad you're here. I love you so much. I'm so proud to be your pastor. Just what an incredible privilege to get to be a part of this church. Grateful to worship with you this morning. If you've got your Bible with you, would you open up to Luke chapter 11, please? And if you don't have a Bible with you, maybe you're visiting today, you should find a black Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And I want to encourage you to open a hard copy. I'm a big fan of analog over digital when it comes to Bibles. And so uh, if you're using one of those black Bibles, you'll find Luke chapter 11 on page 922. Uh, so I want to encourage you to have your Bible open and take a few notes this morning uh, in our study. Uh, my family and I had a conversation at dinner recently, and the hypothetical question was this. Uh, who is the celebrity that if you ran into them, you would totally interrupt whatever they were doing for a conversation or a photograph? Not every celebrity, because we're not those kinds of people, but who's the celebrity big enough? The movie star, the musician, the world leader, who's the person uh, that you would interrupt? And uh, we named several different people, different movie stars and musicians. My mind kept going back to pro wrestlers from the 80s and 90s. I mean, if I saw Nature Boy Ric Flair at Shaw's, I'm going to get in his business and give him a woo and take a picture with him. It would be great. Who would it be for you? Who's the celebrity, world leader, musician, whoever, that you would go and interrupt and you would take a picture with them? Who's that person? And, and so imagine this scenario with me. You actually see that person. You approach them. You ask for a photo. They say yes. You take the photo together, and then you begin to talk. And uh, the, the conversation is really rich, and it lasts like an hour or so. And finally, they've got to go, and you've got to go, and you just can't believe we've had this time together. And then they ask for your cell number, and you swap cell numbers with them. And then you go home that night and you totally overthink it because you've got this number. Should you text them or should you not? Uh, they wouldn't give it just to be kind because that's really personal information. But you don't want to be that person who's like, <laughs> and so, but you don't have to think about it because the next day they text you first. And you start up this conversation and you develop a friendship. And over the course of a year, it turns out you're talking every day with this person. They're talking with you. This person who previously was just a dream, now is a very real friend. What an incredible situation that would be. That's totally make-believe. It's never going to happen. If you approach a celebrity at Shaw's, they're going to be upset with you for bothering them as they get good deals on produce. But it's totally fun to think about and totally imaginary. Here's a scenario that is far less imaginary, actually far more factual. It's this. Anytime you want the ear of the God of the creator of the universe, you got it. Anytime you want to talk to the God who spoke everything out of nothing, the God who knows you by name, numbered the hairs on your head, has ordered your steps, the God who is with you always, anytime you want to talk to him, any place you want to talk to him, you have the ear of God. We call it prayer. And I wonder, how's your prayer life? If you had to evaluate, grade your prayer life, what sort of grade would you give yourself? And I'm embarrassed to say that uh, my prayer life struggles at times. 
Uh, over the course of my walk with Christ, uh, my prayer life lives largely in shallow, quick praying. It's hard for me to dwell in the depths in prayer. Hard for me to go deep in prayer with the Lord. Uh, I've had varying degrees of success, but it's a lot of starts and stops. How about yourself? What if we were to evaluate our church based on the prayer life of our membership? We just had a members meeting a few days ago. We evaluate our church normally based on how many people are coming and how our finances are doing. But what if we took those metrics away and we just said we're going to evaluate the health of our church based on our prayer practices? What sort of grade do you think we would get? I'm not going to say we would get a failing grade. I have no idea. But I think it would be safe for us to say there's room for improvement. For all of us, there's room for improvement. Collectively, as a church, there's opportunity here for us to pray better and deeper and to really dwell with the Lord in prayer. So over the course of the next few weeks, we're going to spend our Sunday morning studying great passages of the Bible that focus on the topic of prayer. And in this doctrinal study of prayer, my goal is that at the end of it, we would be the kinds of people who pray better and pray deeper. If, we're, if our prayer lives struggle, if, if prayer is not something that is, is an issue that we really get excited about, it could be because we don't understand it the way Jesus intended for us to. And so that's why we start our study of prayer in Luke chapter 11 this morning. In Luke chapter 11, the disciples ask Jesus this. They say, Jesus, teach us to pray. To our knowledge, the disciples never asked Jesus to teach them to preach. And they never asked Jesus, teach us to worship. But they asked him, teach us to pray. They go to the master of prayer to learn how to do what he does better than anyone else. And if the disciples needed to be taught how to pray... Well, then, so do we. And so this morning, we sit with Jesus in the school of prayer. And if you are new to praying, or maybe you have a, a long history of praying only liturgical prayers, nothing wrong with those. Uh, but if you, have, uh, if you are looking for a fresh start in your prayer life, a jump start, or just the basics, Jesus takes us to school today in Luke chapter 11. When Jesus answers the disciples' request... He is answering three different key questions about prayer for them. And that's going to be so helpful for us today. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. It starts this way. He was praying in a certain place. That he is Jesus. Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. He said to them, whenever you pray, say, Father, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone in debt to us. And do not bring us into temptation. He also said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me! The door's already locked and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. 
tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So this passage has three very well-defined sections in it. Uh, The first section is what we call the Lord's Prayer. The second section is this story Jesus tells about you going to a friend's house at midnight for some bread. The third section is this question about if fathers know how to give good gifts, don't your heavenly father, doesn't your heavenly father know how to do that also? In each of those three sections, Jesus answers for us a key question about prayer. That's going to help jumpstart our prayer lives. The first question Jesus answers is this. What do I pray? It's a question about the content of our praying, the language we use. What do I pray? And Jesus' answer is we're going to pray for God's kingdom and we're going to pray for God's care. So verses 1 through 4 are what we know as the Lord's Prayer. It's also found in Matthew chapter 6. We actually studied the Matthew chapter 6 passage this past summer. It was Sunday, July 4th. The nine of you that were here will remember what an exquisite sermon it was. You can't quit talking about it. I mean, it was amazing. It was a great Sunday together before we went to the parade. Uh, But that Sunday, we did a deep dive on the Lord's Prayer. I don't intend to rehash all of that this morning. I would encourage you in the week ahead, go to the website, Look at the July 4th sermon, and you'll find that it's titled this, The Disciples' Prayer. A lot of people over the years have said, "Ah, this shouldn't be titled the Lord's Prayer. It should be called the Disciples' Prayer because this is not a prayer that Jesus himself would have prayed. And why is that? Well, one of the major petitions of this prayer is, forgive us our sins. And since Jesus is the eternal, sinless, holy, holy, holy God the Son, he didn't have sin that needed to be forgiven. And so this wasn't the prayer Jesus necessarily prayed, but this was the prayer he wanted his disciples to pray. And that's why it would be right to call it the disciples' prayer. And so what should we pray? What should the content of our prayers be to God? This is a good question, something to consider, because on the one hand, God gives us great freedom in our praying. If you survey the Bible... For the content of prayers, you will find that prayers exist in all kinds of shapes and sizes. There are short prayers, there are long prayers. There are prayers that focus on the glory of God, there are prayers that focus on thanksgiving, there are prayers that are prayers of complaint. A prayer is all over the map, it looks like all kinds of different things. So we have great freedom in our praying. But also, it's wise to recognize that God has also given us instructions for what to pray and how to pray. So it's fair to say that we have freedom within the guidelines that God has given us. There's indeed a way to pray that's not helpful. There's indeed a way to pray that doesn't fall in line with God's desire for us for how we should pray. And so the disciples' prayer answers this question, what do I pray? 
And Jesus tells us that the first thing we do when we pray is we address the omnipotent, eternally glorious God the Creator as Father. You don't address Him as King, though He is a King. You don't address Him as ruler, though He rules over all things. You don't call Him the sovereign unknown, though those things are in ways true of Him. You call Him Father. The title Father tells us something about God's character. He's loving, He's compassionate and kind and attentive. The title Father tells us something of His nearness to us. He's close. He's with us. He's not an unknown deity in a distant throne room far away from us. If you grew up with an earthly dad who was an honorable man, godly, then you have an advantage in understanding what a good father is. And if you grew up with a father who was less than honorable for whatever sort of reason, then everything negative that you associate with Father is not found in your heavenly Father. He's faithful. His words are gentle. He's loving and kind. Never leaves you. Never forsakes you. That's the kind of Father He is. And when you pray to your Father, you're to pray about two categories of things according to the disciples' prayer. The first would be His kingdom. And when you pray about God's kingdom, first and foremost, you're going to pray that his name would be honored as holy. God, in your kingdom, in the realm where you reign, which is every molecule in existence, in your kingdom, your name be honored as holy. That when we speak about God's name being honored as holy, what we're saying is that God would be acknowledged as entirely other, totally separate completely revered and worshipped, transcendent beyond all things. When we honor His name as holy, we're not treating Him as the divine submissive who does our bidding. We are putting ourselves in proper relationship to Him. He is God, creator, eternal and infinite, and we are finite and created and broken and in need. God, your name be honored as holy is a request that he would be God and no one else. God, your name be honored as holy. The second thing we ask is for his kingdom to come. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come, what we're praying is for the expanse of the gospel until the very end of all things. God, claim real estate for yourself. Gain places and people for yourself who hear the gospel and say yes to Jesus Christ by faith. And so when we pray these things for God's name to be honored as holy and for his kingdom to come, where are we praying for those things to happen? Well, certainly we would look to the world and we would say, God, let your name be honored as holy in this world. In every nation, in every household, those who are close to me and those far away, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. It's a global prayer. God, take the gospel to the ends of the earth. But these prayers are not just about other people in other places. They are about the two square feet of planet earth that I occupy myself. God, your name be honored as holy in my life. God, your kingdom come. Your gospel be made known in my life. These are prayers about how you and I live before Him. We would honor His name as holy. 
and that his kingdom would come because of our trust in him and our obedience to his word. So when we pray to our Father, we're going to pray for his kingdom. That's not the only thing we're going to pray, though. Jesus then tells us we're going to pray for his care, for his providence in our lives. We've got things going on that we need his attention to. And so in verse 3, we pray for our daily bread. Uh, This is a prayer for our physical needs. In verse 4, we pray for forgiveness. This is a prayer for our spiritual needs. Also in verse 4, we pray to be protected from temptation. This is a prayer for our moral needs. Jesus gives us these three broad areas of concern, physical, spiritual, moral, that we would bring before God the Father and we would ask Him to meet according to His perfect will in His fullness. I love the writer, preacher John Stott's take on this passage. I shared it in that July 4th sermon. You'll all remember it vividly, and I'm happy to repeat it again. He said this. He said, it seems that if these three needs are going to be met in our lives, they're going to be met in a Trinitarian way. God the Father, through His creation and providence, gives us daily bread. He meets our physical needs. God the Son, through His death and resurrection, grants us forgiveness. He meets our spiritual needs. God the Holy Spirit, through His indwelling power, will lead us into truth and rescue us from the evil one. He cares for our moral needs. And so the disciples' prayer teaches us to pray for God's kingdom and God's care. And and as Jesus articulated this prayer, I think you can highlight five specific focal points in the disciples' prayer. Focal points of prayer. If I'm to pray, here's things that I I want on my list. So I want to show you this uh, bullet point list of these five focal points in the disciples' prayer. The first will be the honor of God's name. Second is God's kingdom expanse, the growth of his kingdom. Third would be our daily needs. Fourth would be for our forgiveness. And then fifth is for protection from temptation. Here's what I want you to do now. Just based on these five bullet points, if you were to evaluate your prayer life against these five focal points, where would you say the majority of your prayer life abides? Which bullet point gets the most time and space in your practice of prayer? It might be different for all of us. I can answer for myself. I would say that the daily needs part of this is where so much of my prayer life lives. And I would say that I have anemic percentages in some other areas of these focal points. Daily needs, that's easy for me. Maybe it is for you also. I, I, just, I can come to God with a, a shopping list of things. I need this. My family needs that. My church needs that. My neighbor. And it's not wrong to pray for those needs. Jesus tells us to pray for these daily needs, these physical needs. But if that makes up 90% of my prayer diet, I might need to pay attention to some other areas of my prayer life as well. When's the last time you spent an entire session of prayer focused on the holiness of God's name alone? You didn't pray for one need that you have or someone else has. You just sat and in sacred quietness prayed to God about the holiness of his name. Have you done that? When's the last time you committed a full day to praying for protection from temptation? 
I think so many times my problem, maybe this is an issue you deal with also, is just a mindlessness when it comes to praying. I don't think about the content. I just think of the act. I just do. And what comes quick and easy is a laundry list of needs. And I don't dwell in these other places where Jesus tells me I should dwell. And so, uh, perhaps we think a bit more about what we pray, the content of our praying. I think Jesus gives us kingdom and care in that order on purpose. I think when we pray, we should strive for the kingdom of God to be our primary concern and our care to also be a concern, but second to that. If the kingdom of God is in place, his name is holy, my needs are met. So Jesus teaches us what we should pray. He teaches us to pray to our Father about his kingdom and for our care. There's a second question Jesus answers in this passage, and the question is, how do I pray? And the answer is this, we pray without hesitation. I love this little hypothetical story Jesus gives us in verses 5 through 10. It is awesome. And, and the story is this. You have to put on your imagination cap for a moment. And we go into the way back machine back to the first century and first century values and culture. And it is midnight. You're asleep as all good people should be at midnight. And there's a knocking at the door. You open the door and there is a friend that you didn't know was coming through. And in this first century culture, hospitality is a significant virtue. And it is vital that you take that uninvited guest in and you care for them. You feed them, you give them whatever they need for the night. Because if you don't, not only will you and your family be shamed, you will bring shame on your whole village as you develop a reputation or produce a reputation for inhospitability. So you have to take care of this person. But you know this, I've got nothing. I, I, I need help. You run next door to your neighbor. Midnight, knock on the door. And you say, hey, I've got an uninvited guest, an unexpected guest. I didn't know he was coming. I, I, can I have three loaves of bread? I just made enough for today. I just made my daily bread. I don't, I don't have any extras. Can I get three loaves of bread from you? And your friend says, go away. <laughs> it, it is midnight. And look, you're knocking on the door of the house. The house in the first century is not like some, you know, a, a two-level home with the master suite and the kids' rooms are upstairs over here. Everyone's got their ceiling fans and their white noise machines going. You, you've got one room. You sleep in the same room you cook in and you, what, it all happens in the same room. And so when you knock on the door, you're not just waking up your buddy, you're waking up his wife and you're waking up their kids. And this is bad news in every generation of humankind. And your friend says, go away, I've got nothing for you, you're waking up my family, it is too late for this. And the story doesn't tell us that you keep persistently knocking on the door. It just says your friend lays there, and he's going to get up eventually and help you. Not because you're such a good friend and, and he loves you, but because of your shameless boldness in coming to the door at midnight and asking for help. The key to understanding what this little story is getting at is found in verse 8. I want you to look at it in your Bible with me because depending on your translation of the Bible, you might have a different word or a different phrase in verse 8. In verse 8, Jesus says, I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness. 
he'll get up and give him as much as he needs. Shameless boldness in the CSB, uh, our pew Bibles that I've read. Uh, if you have an ESV, it's the word impudence. I'm not sure that helps any. If you've got an NIV, it's the word shameless audacity. King James is importunity. New King James is persistence. The Greek word is anaideia. And a Bible scholar named Klein Snodgrass found that the word is used over 250 times in the New Testament. And every time this word is used, it is used in a negative way. It doesn't mean simple persistence. Persistence can be a good thing, a positive thing. This word communicates shamelessness. Uh, the sheer audacity to go to your next, your next door neighbor's house at midnight while the family's sleeping and to wake them up to get some bread. It refers to outrageous offensive behavior. And so the guy in the story acts with this sort of outrageous behavior by waking up the neighbor and trying to get his needs met. So I, I really like the translation I've read from the CSB, shameless boldness, NIV, shameless audacity. I think those are really helpful translations of this word that get help us get to the point of the story. This is how we're to approach God in prayer. Like the person who has shameless boldness in knocking on the door at midnight to ask for bread. This means that we will bring our most embarrassing failures, all of our needs, all of our weaknesses, all of our requests to God. We will not keep them under our own roof, we will go to God without hesitating, with no shame, and we will let Him know our needs. We don't do that. Do you ever play this game in prayer? You, you pray for other people, but you don't pray for yourself. And, and sometimes we do that because we, we, we would justify that by saying, well, I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm not that type of person. I'm not self-righteous. And uh, in humility, I just want to put the needs of others before myself, even in my prayer life. It's right that we need to pray for other people. But Jesus here is telling us we need to, be, we need to pray for ourselves. We need to bring the things that are hidden, the shameful things, the things that are in the dark. We need to bring them into the light of God's forgiveness through confession and repentance. Our gross sin... Our shameful weakness, our repeated failures. Those things that we would rather God not look upon or know. Those are the things we bring to God in prayer. This is why Jesus tells us in verse 9 to ask, seek, knock. Don't be hesitant in any way to make your needs and requests known to God. Your sleeping neighbor might be put out by a midnight knock, but not your heavenly Father. He's not going to turn you away. He will open the door to you and receive you in all of your brokenness. So how do we pray? Without hesitating. We come just as we are before our heavenly Father. What do we pray? We pray for God's kingdom and care. How do I pray? I pray without hesitating. The third question Jesus answers is this, to whom do I pray? And I pray to my trustworthy Father. In verses 11 through 13, 
Jesus gives us this one last bit of instruction for praying. And here he wants to underscore the trustworthiness of God. Look at what Jesus says, starting in verse 11. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? And you've got to love the incredible awkwardness of Jesus. Who among you, if you've got a kid, and your kid asks for something to drink, you're going to give them a bucket of sand. Or they ask for something good to eat, you're going to give them a poisonous insect. You're evil and you know how to do the right thing. How much more does your heavenly father? So awkward and so correct. Just it, how many times have we come to God and we've thought, does he really know my need and will he really care for me? Well, if you who are evil and broken and finite and messed up and doubting, if you know how to take care of your own children, don't you think your heavenly father knows how to take care of you? Are you a better parent than your heavenly father? But he really puts us on point here that we would just deal in the logic of the matter. He makes this argument from lesser to greater. If you who are evil know how to take care of kids, your heavenly Father who is perfect and holy, 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 he will not let you down. He will never fail to do you good. And to make his point here, Jesus says in verse 13, that if you call on your heavenly Father, he will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And here's where we might be quick to push back a bit and say, I don't need the Holy Spirit. I just, I just need a little more money in the bank. I just need a little better help. I just need a little better, what, whatever the thing is. But Jesus is making this point that when we come to him with these tiny needs, he answers with the fullness of himself. He doesn't just flick trinkets our way as if we're pigeons looking for birdseed in a park. He gives us himself to meet every tiny, small, big-to-us need that we have. He answers with himself the Holy Spirit. And here's where I think prayer transforms for us from some obligation to the sky God to come our way. When we begin to understand what God has already given us, we wonder, will he meet my need and the fact is, He has already given His Son for you. Muslims pray. Buddhists pray. What's different? The difference is this. Our sin has broken our relationship with God utterly and completely. I'm at fault. You're at fault. And there is nothing you can do that will fix that separation as if we can pray a mountain of prayers that will eventually get us to God. The more we pray without Christ at the center of our lives, the greater the gap is between us and God. It's not like God is up there bored saying, man, I just wish people would pray so I've got something to do. His desire is for a relationship with you, to forgive you of your sin, to make you a whole new creature. That's why he showed his love for you by sending his one and only son to die in your place for your sin. Jesus died on the cross, the death that we deserve for our sin against God. He's the sinless son of God, the one and only perfect sacrifice, the only one that could die for us. 
And he died in our place for our sin. And three days later, he rose from the dead. And his promise to us is that if we will turn from our sin, turn from ourselves, and if we will trust in him exclusively, we'll be forgiven. We'll be given eternal life. That God the Holy Spirit will dwell in us. And then prayer isn't a chore to get God to bend our way. It's the environment we live in as we commune with our Heavenly Father who has taken us from dead to alive by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus promises us here that your Heavenly Father will consistently do you good. But we struggle to believe that. How many times do we come to God in prayer with both need and solution? God, here's my problem, and here's how you need to fix it. And, and sometimes, like, it's not, I'm not saying that's bad all the time, but there are moments when we do that, and it's a complete lack of trust revealed in us. Sometimes it might be enough to say, God, I'm in need, and you know that, and you know the solution, and I love you, and I'm going to walk with you no matter what. That's who we pray to. A God who knows, a God who's trustworthy, a God who's loving and compassionate, a God who already has the solutions, a God we can trust. So Jesus has taken us to school this morning. What are we to pray? We are to pray for God's kingdom and His care. And how am I to pray? I'm to pray without hesitancy, with shameless audacity. And to whom do I pray? I pray to my trustworthy Father. At the beginning of our time together, I ask you to evaluate your prayer life. And if you evaluated it as poor, I wonder if it's because, well, you don't pray the things Jesus has told us to pray, or your prayer life is almost exclusively needs-based. And it could be because when you pray, you don't pray about the things in your life that are shameful, sinful, broken, you try to hide those away, play a shell game with God. And it could be because when you pray, your prayers reveal that you actually don't trust God. You're just trying to manipulate Him to get Him to do what you want and how you want. So if prayer is just a wish thrown up into the sky to a moody, distant deity, it's no wonder we don't pray. But if we understand prayer to be the act of abiding with God, with faith that he will meet our needs with the fullness of himself, then why would we ever cease praying? I heard this story once from an old preacher. I loved it because it uh, had happened in my life. So I'm going to tell it in the first person. When my girls were little, uh, from time to time we'd play this little game. Uh, I would have pennies, I'd put them in my hand, and I would close my fist around my hand like this. And they'd jump up in my lap, and they would try to dig for the pennies, just peeling back a finger at a time. In the international rules of pennies in hand, once a finger has been peeled back, you, you can't close it back up. It's got to stay open. So they peel it open, and they peel it open. Eventually, they get my hand open, and there's the pennies, and they would, they would take the pennies and jump down laughing and run away. And It was a simple, fun game. They're just kids, and it's just a game. But sometimes we come to God in prayer only interested in the pennies in his hand. God, I got a test this week. I need you to bail me out of this one. 
God, I got this ache. I need you to make it go away. God, I need you to fix my spouse. God, we need more money in the bank. And when God grants the request, we snatch the pennies out of his hand, and then we push his hand away, and we take off with the trinket. More important than the pennies in God's hand is the hand of God himself. And that's what prayer is. Abiding with your heavenly Father who loves you and will always do you well. We asked Jesus to teach us to pray today and he told us this, when you pray, call him Father. Let's pray together. Lord God, Heavenly Father, I echo still the disciples' request, teach us to pray. We've gone to school with Jesus today. Now we need to go to practice. This week, would you guide us in viewing prayer not as an obligation that might appease you and bend you our way, but as the delight of children with their father. Together we praise you because you know our needs and you know the solutions. You know how we get to the end of all things and your name is glorified forever and ever. So Lord, let this be a week in which we pray deeper and we pray better. Let this be the day that we sit with you in prayer, not merely in the busyness of life, though those prayers are important, not merely on a commute, though that's a great way to spend a commute, but in sacred solitude to sit with you and to have your ear and to know that we have your heart. Father, thank you for the privilege of prayer. Thank you for being our heavenly Father who loves us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, today, we're going to respond to the Word of God through the Lord's Supper. And so if somehow you made it inside and didn't grab uh, the elements, now would be the time to slip out into the upper lobby and, and grab these and come right back in. And uh, we have some guidelines when it comes to the Lord's Supper, and those guidelines are, are these. Um, we invite all followers of Jesus Christ to eat and drink with us this 